I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is Reactionary Minds, a project of the unpopulist. Christian nationalism has long been a sub-movement on the American right, but recently its profile has risen as an increasing number of conservative media personalities and politicians claim the label and call for America to be reoriented as an explicitly Christian nation. To help me explore just what Christian nationalism entails as a movement and an ideology, as well as its history on the right, I'm joined today by Paul Matsko. He's a research fellow at the Cato Institute, an historian of the American right, and author of The Radio Right, How a Band of Broadcasters Took on the Federal Government and Built the Modern Conservative Movement. Let's start by unpacking the term Christian nationalism. What in this context do we mean by Christian? So this is a definitional issue, right? So if you um, ask someone, if you, if you say someone's a Christian nationalist, most of the time they're going to say, well, no, um, I don't think I am because the term is kind of loaded. It's a, it's a bit of a loaded term. Um, so it's, yeah, it's important that we define what we mean when we discuss it, what, how people who are self-identified Christian nationalists, what they mean by using the term, what folks who we would say espouse Christian nationalist views, even though they wouldn't call themselves Christian nationalists mean by the term. Um, the funny thing about Christian nationalism, the, the two terms there, it's a bit like the uh, the old saw about the Holy Roman Empire being neither holy nor Roman nor much of an empire. Um, Christian nationalism is neither particularly Christian in terms of its, um, uh, I, I guess you'd say, fidelity to historic Christian orthodoxy, nor is it um, all that effectively nationalist when it comes down to it. It's this... Um, I, I think of it as a response to a particular moment um, in uh, in American history, but it is a response to this moment by anxious Christians um, that echoes previous moments in U.S. history when previous generations of Christians have espoused similar views, just kind of cloaked in different language with different targets um, uh, for their for their anxiety. So it's it's both new in the sense that it it reflects this particular moment, but also very old, and that you can find strains of what I guess today we would call Christian nationalism, though it's a relatively recent term, all the way back through American history. What is this moment then? Yeah, so the way I'd put it is this: like if you were our our age, right? You're Gen X, I'm millennial. If you're our age, you remember the '90s, right? We're, we're children or teens of the '90s. And we are coming off a period of peak conservative Christian dominance in American culture. Now, not in every American cultural institution. Uh, you, the 90s were not peak uh, Christian influence on the Supreme Court. Arguably, that's right now, which a majority of the members of the Supreme Court are conservative Christians of some kind or another. Uh, nor necessarily dominance in politics. I would argue that the early 2000s were kind of the peak moment of new Christian right influence in American politics during the Bush administration. But in terms of just kind of cultural majoritarian influence, uh, the 90s were kind of it. It's post uh, fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, it felt like godless communism had been defeated by uh, American Christianity. Uh, in fact, if you go to the Billy Graham Museum in uh, in North Carolina, 
uh, there's a chunk of the Berlin Wall as one of the exhibits. And the idea being that like Billy Graham went and preached in Berlin and the wall fell, right? So it was a triumph of American evangelicalism over godless communism. Um, it's so, it, and we get like, if you walked into a strip mall or a mall in the 90s, odds are you'd walk by one of the 4,500 Thomas Kincaid, uh, the Christian artist, the painter of light, one of his... Uh, studios, uh, you'd hear acoustic contemporary Christian music playing on the mall speakers. It was like literally in the air, uh, an oral uh, um, permeation of the American landscape. I grew up, you know, there was a Christian bookstore in every town of any size all across America, kind of like think of like borders, but with more like devotional literature. Um, so the 90s are this period of kind of peak conservative Christian, both conservative Catholic and conservative evangelical uh, influence in American culture. And since then, that that um, dominance really has been gradually eroding. You know, the rise of the nuns, of people who don't, don't identify as Christian, the rise of, um, oh, the way that evangelicals themselves would have described it would have been a secular humanism, people who um, don't, don't, believe in God and are kind of aggressive. It's kind of a, a figment, a paranoid figment of the imagination in part, but there has been this rise of kind of secular, a religious uh, folks in America over the last 20 years. Um, there are now more nuns than there are Catholics. Um, nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. Uh, so the American religious landscape has changed in significant ways. And so you go from that period of, of kind of cultural dominance to slipping significance, and that creates status anxiety. So I think the key to note is that episodes of Christian nationalism in American history, and I can tell you more about the long history of this, tend to correspond with feelings of anxiety and are ultimately rooted in cultural fear that uh, some status or place or significance is being lost and might never return, and that tends to fuel um, it, it ultimately tends to fuel kind of paranoid political activism, uh, which is what we're kind of seeing right now, in which we are labeling Christian nationalism. How does Trump fit into that then? And this goes back, I think, to my my initial question of what we mean by Christian, because one of the odd things that we've seen is an embrace of a man who arguably does not embody Christian values. Yes, yes. You know, <laughs> like seems to be kind of the consummate sinner, right? And and doesn't seem to know anything about, you know, I mean, what, like, I, when I grew up, there were always these television preachers you'd flip across when kind of the Saturday morning cartoons had ended and you're still just didn't want to get up from the TV and you're flipping channels and there'd be these guys. And one of their characteristics was as bizarre as they were, they had basically memorized the the Bible and could quote all these things. Trump doesn't have that either. Like he doesn't know anything and his his values run very counter to my understanding of the values Christ stood for. And yet he's embraced, which seems like this weird response to a lack of influence because if if what you're seeing, if what you're imagining is happening is that Christian values are no longer central to American life, but now you're embracing as the guy who's going to represent you and bringing them back, someone who 
is even more in opposition to Christian values than most of those nuns or secular humanists seem to be. Yeah, well, in, it, it's true. I mean, there is there there is a an irony or hypocrisy, I suppose, depending on on you how how you view it there, and and that is one of the reasons why quite a few. Maybe I should put you know hashtag not all Christians or not all evangelicals or not all conservative Christians, um, because there are significant numbers who um, were anti-Trump for precisely the reasons you mentioned. They said, "Look, this is you know a twice divorced." Um, notorious liar and grifter is not a fitting representative uh, of kind of Christian interests in politics. Um, but they were the, mi- the minority um, opinion. I mean, after all, in the end of the day, about 80% of self-described evangelicals voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and similar number in 2020. So it's definitely the, the minority opinion. Uh, as far as why it makes sense, though, despite that difference, is again, I think you have to you have to see this as rooted in fear. And when you're afraid, um, there is little you wouldn't do. The way this gets justified, and so I don't want to overemphasize the justifications for it, because I suspect that even if these justifications weren't invented, other justifications would have been invented, right? These are kind of ex post facto, how do we um, uh, justify the results that we wanted? Uh, but the, the there are kind of two responses. One, um, and we can talk more about Seven Mountains theology uh, in more detail. There's kind of a Pentecostal variant theology, uh, which is all is obsessed with capturing the seven mountains of cultural influence in America, uh, one of which is government. And in that framing, and from that kind of community, there was this idea that Trump represented the symbolic rebirth, almost a, to use Christian terminology, almost like a Christ type um, uh, a, a, a rebirth of Cyrus. King Cyrus of the Persian Empire. And for those who didn't grow up learning about King Cyrus in Sunday school, uh, well, you know, good for you, I suppose. But um, uh, Cyrus is the king of Persia when the exilic Jews who have been captured and forced into captivity for generations, he says, you can go back to Jerusalem. You can go back to what, you know, to Israel and rebuild Jerusalem. So it's a big deal in terms of prophetic passages of scripture, Cyrus plays this big role in that he kind of frees the people of Israel, notably despite not being Jewish, obviously, and not being a kind of a believer, if you will. So the idea that a secular king uh, who doesn't share the values of God's people would still look out for the interests and safety and protection of God's people uh, is a kind of a, a type. It's a literary type and kind of Christian thinking um, that's that's not exclusive just to you know the the current Christian nationalists. So they kind of seized on the idea and explicitly in the Seven Mountains community said Trump is our new Cyrus. So the fact that he is an unbeliever or or a marginal believer, I don't know, we want to, you know he, um, and that he has all these personal problems and so on doesn't really matter in the same sense that Cyrus had a harem, he had lots of wives. Who really cares? What matters is that he protects God's people. Um, he's kind of God's ordained secular workman on our behalf. And so there was a way of kind of um, sacralizing that impulse. Others were got less fancy with the theological trappings. And like Robert Jeffress, who's the pastor of uh, Dallas, uh, First Baptist in Dallas, large Southern Baptist megachurch in Texas, um, 
he basically just said, look, we're a standard line. Uh, we're voting for a president, not for a pastor. And at the end of the day, we want the we want the bully who looks out for us to fight off the bullies who are against us. So better Donald Trump than Hillary Clinton. So there was lots of different ways of just saying, you know, the lesser of two evils of saying, you know, all the way to kind of um, oddly reading him into the scripture as a new Cyrus. So a range of responses, all of which at the end of the day, I think is rooted just in fear, fear that if Donald Trump doesn't win in 2016, <clears throat> isn't reelected in 2020, that it's the end of American Christianity as we know it, that the godless humanists and feminists and civil rights activists and, you know, are going to swamp America and destroy what makes us great. So, yeah. When you hear Christian nationalists or other people who are are coming from a place of these same shared concerns, talk about that fear. There's often something a little odd going on that, that maybe you can tease out for me, which is they speak as if people are secular humanists or non-Christians or the elites are trying to actively destroy their religious beliefs, stamp it out, are that there's that there's like an aggressive attack upon them and their beliefs. So this is the like you can no longer say Merry Christmas or, you know, is, yeah, is one yeah. version of that. <laughs> the war on but, Christmas. <laughs> right. But then when they point to examples of what's wrong in America or or when they lash out or they try to get the law changed, it's not so much defensive in the sense of there are people like the, there are people trying to force us to bake cakes for day weddings or whatever but it is more they're lashing out at growing tolerance for lifestyles that they object to and so it's not so much that what they're pointing to are direct assaults on their ability to believe the things that they want to believe but rather that other people are being allowed to believe something different and those aren't quite those aren't quite the same thing, but they talk about them as if they are. Yeah, there's the core irony that like Amer conservative American Christians are the least, not just the least persecuted commu religious community in the world today. They're arguably the least actually persecuted religious community in all of human history. <laughs> um, so it, it's, it's a bizarre juxtaposition. And yet... If you go and ask, uh, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but um, I think uh, Barna, a religious pollster, or maybe it was Pew did the poll, um, asking who are the most persecuted communities in America. And they went and asked a bunch of different Americans. And so if you ask uh, African-Americans, they'll usually say African-Americans and for good reason, right? History of racism, segregation, and so on. But if you ask Christians, they will say that they are the most persecuted religious group in America, more so than Muslims, more so than, you know, uh, Jews facing anti-Semitism, which is just ludicrous. Um, so the question is, what's going on there? Why do why do they feel so persecuted? And I actually think it's it's sincere, not that that makes it accurate, but it's a sincere belief. And um, the sincerity, I think, is is rooted in a variety of habits and kind of cultural practices, rituals, even if you will. So growing up evangelical, and I would still identify as evangelical myself today, um, but growing up uh, a very conservative evangelical community, you were steeped in 
in a lot of uh, of storytelling about persecution, about the the constant, imminent, just beyond the veil threat of persecution. Just the, the shoe is always about the drop, and that ranges from. I mean, when I was a when I was a kid, and this is a reminder that uh, this habit is very old. I, I I read. I mean, as young as five or six, I read. And had portions read to me from Fox's Book of Martyrs, which was a, you know, a, a, um, a Protestant book that was a reform, you know, from the Reformation era. Like we're talking, you know, 16th, 17th century uh, uh, European wars of religion, which was like, look at all the Catholics killing and crucifying. You know, it was also uh, people from early Christian history being persecuted by, you know being persecuted by the Romans, thrown to the lions and so on. So like literally some of the earliest kind of cradle instruction I received was the world's out to get and kill Christians. And the fact that it's not happening now shouldn't make you, uh, don't get, you know, don't get blase about that. It's always just around the corner. So that, that mindset is kind of taught. Um, and it also, I think, uh, is a function of it, 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 and rather th- I don't want to poo poo all of that as nothing. One of the one of the funny things about conservative Christianity in America is that it is a f- at least in the 90s, less so today. It was the peak of an era when it was kind of cultural majoritarian. And yet it felt like uh, you know, they felt like an oppressed minority. Some of that was a memory of an era when they actually were a weird, relatively small, culturally insignificant group. So, like you go back to the to the you know the nineteen twenties, and Christians are the laughing stock in the stories that are told about the Scopes trial, right? Uh, and uh, you know, creationist creationism on trial, uh, William Jennings Bryan, John T. Scopes, and so on. Um, or you go to the era of oh the the 1940s and 50s um, when, you know, mainline Christianity, a liberal ecumenical uh, liberal Protestantism is far more dominant and actually possesses real political power. Like the, the the Dulles brothers um, are mainline Christians who with lots of behind the scenes power in DC, all the presidents, you know, Eisenhower, uh, Truman, they all attend mainline churches. And so conservative Christians remember a time when they don't control much. There might be a lot of them out in the boondocks, out in rural Tennessee on, you know, um, but they don't hold real power in American politics until suddenly they do by the 1980s and 90s. And so it's kind of a, it's a mindset that's forged in a, you know, in a, in a moment when they do remember being kind of on the, the margins of American society and suddenly they aren't anymore, but they can't escape that mindset. Um, so it's a combination of that. It's kind of a taught mindset, it's a taught attitude. Um, and then also I think it's it's rooted in a real experience of being on the, the relative margins of American political power and society. And the fear of returning to that situation too, right? That's where the status anxiety comes in. You mentioned in passing some of the uh, theological through lines or influences on this. So I want to turn to that because – so there are there are people out there who call themselves, say, Christian nationalists. So Marjorie Taylor Greene has been using increasingly using that phrase and saying, like, you're damn right I am, and this is what we need. But she doesn't seem 
it's hard to say figure out a theological through line for her because she's got Christian influences, but also a lot of QAnon, <laughs> and then there's the Jewish space lasers stuff, and so she seems to just be a hodgepodge. But is there like a core thinker or set of thinkers that is the primary driver or influence on this on this particular emergence now? Yeah, so there there are yeah there are varieties of Christian nationalism coming out of different particular religious communities and, and milieus. The one that's most notable now, and I already kind of referenced it with Seven Mountains theology, Seven Mountains mandate, it's some kind sometimes called. That's um that's kind of, that's the main influence behind people like uh Paul White, who prayed at Trump's inauguration. She fame her prayer said for this great country that you have decreed to your people, which is as clear an expression of Christian nationalism, that God gave this nation to Christians, right? That's, that, if that's not Christian nationalism, what is? Um, Lance Walno, um, uh, actually, Charlie Kirk, your, your buddy, Aaron, uh, he got in on this game at CPAC in 2020. He said that with Trump, quote, finally, we have a president that understands the seven mountains of cultural influence. Um, uh, Rafael Cruz, uh, Ted Cruz's father is a big proponent of Seven Mountains theology, he played a role in actually Ted Cruz's success in the Utah GOP primaries in 2016. He actually went on the stump for his son because Mormons are an interesting kind of uh, Christian nationalism, uh, which that's a kind of a separate uh, discussion. But this Seven Mountains theology, I don't get too much down the weeds. Again, it's uh, I tend to think of it as an ex post facto justification for a more basic impulse to be concerned about the direction of America and your community's place in, in America. And then you go back and you kind of backfill theologically. But the, the, the theological groundings are these verses in Isaiah and Revelation um, about seven mountains. Um, they're, they're pretty obscure prophetic passages, but the, the meaning that they're given is that these seven mountains described represent seven centers of cultural power in America, things like education, family, government, arts, the media, and so on. And if Christians don't conquer those mountains, the high places first, then the forces of Satan will, ushering in the Antichrist and the end times. So the, it's, um, uh, it is a novel interpretation of these passages. Uh, it comes out of charismatic independent charismatic uh christian circles uh te technically called the new apostolic reformation so if you're in your area if there's a mega church that's run not by a pastor or a preacher and it's not part of a denomination like a more established pentecostal denomination like the assemblies of god or so on but it's like an independent mega church with a, an apostle leading it they say i'm apostle ron carpenter you know um or that the odds are pretty decent. That's kind of part of the, these independent charismatic circles. Um, and they're the ones who, again, part of that interpretation are like, look, Trump is a fulfillment of prophecies around Cyrus. He's a new Cyrus. And when someone like when Trump moved the U S embassy to Jerusalem, that confirmed in their minds, look, that's just like Cyrus sending God's people back to rebuild Jerusalem. Now Trump is, is sending I, in the same way the U S embassy represents the return of exilic, Jews somehow. I don't know, but the symbolism was very apparent uh, to them. So, um, you know, it's a combination of, I think, sincere belief, but then also there's a good amount of grift going on here. So like Lance Walno, um, one of the 
kind of main proponents, the the Ur source um, uh, of Seven Mountains theology. He prophesied Trump's election in 2016, so he got a lot of street cred. He prophesied the election and before it was cool to think Trump was going to win, back when Trump was a marginal candidate, and then he wins, and it's like, well, obviously that was a true prophecy. Ergo, have a high opinion of my you know my views. Um, he did miss the prediction in 2020. He said Trump would win re-election, uh, though uh, not before selling a bunch of $45 Trump. Uh, it's like Trump's image surimposed on Cyrus's image on gold coins, which he hawked on Jim Baker's cable show. You might remember Jim Baker is the disgraced televangelist from the 1980s. It's basically like a sanctified QVC ripoff for end times preppers <laughs> in the Ozarks. Um He's actually now, Lance Wanlow's on the uh, campaign trail for Doug Mastriano running for governor in Pennsylvania. So, um, I mean, you just go down the list of figures in the Trump administration. Uh, Michael Flynn, uh, he went to John Hagee, his megachurch, and said, quote, if we are going to have one nation under God, which we must, we have to have one religion, one nation under God, and one religion under God. So, like, it, it's pervasive in uh, kind of ex-Trump administration officials of a certain type. Um, it is pervasive in right-wing politics right now. I mean, Charlie Kirk is traveling America on these um, pulpit and pew rallies is what they've been described as, going to mega churches, often kind of Seven Mountains independent charismatic churches, and holding um, pro-Trump rallies and saying, look, the... Uh, key to saving America is doing get out the vote work among among conservative Christians. So this Seven Mountains thing, it's it's it's. I think most American observers have never even heard of this. It's kind of an obscure theological interpretation, relatively novel, uh, relatively recent that even most conservative Christians haven't necessarily heard of. But it's actually very pervasive and uh, throughout right wing politics in America today. Let's then turn specifically to the nationalism part of this and and then specifically within that American nationalism that because you could you could kind of be indifferent to America per se and just have your view be that this geographical area with a state that governs it, I want it to be Christian. But there does seem to be something more to the connection than that. That there's they see something particularly special about America or America's relationship to Christianity. So how does that play out in this? So here's where we get it. it, it we get to that older kind of impulse and uh, among American Christians and not even just conservative Christians. I mean, I've been speaking about conservative Catholics, evangelicals right now, but this is a very old and um, kind of cross theological uh, impulse in American in American history. This idea of identifying America as a special place in God's divine order for the for human history. Um, there's actually a technical term for this. So so in classic um, Christian theology, both Catholic and Protestant, it's not universal, but it's kind of a consensus opinion. Is this a proposition? You know, ever wonder about the difference between you know. Uh, Jewish theology and Christian theology, well, one of the keys is that um, Christians believe that Jews were sent a Messiah. The promised Messiah came, Jesus Christ. Jews rejected him. Therefore, they're no longer God's chosen people. 
Now the church of Christians are God's chosen people. We call this, uh, the technical theological term is supersessionism or replacement theology, that the church replaces Israel as God's people. Not fully, and this is where you get into like Christian Zionism, like the weird uh, like uh, philo-Semitism where American evangelicals are like, yay, the state of Israel. But th that set aside, formally, theologically, the standard Christian interpretation has been that uh, the the people of God today are are the Christian church, writ large, not just one denomination, but all, all Christians. There is a, um, but there's a, a, a habit, if you will, throughout um, Christian history. It's not just an American impulse. It's a broader impulse that anytime a country is particularly successful or powerful or wealthy, um, there's this habit of Christians in that country to be like, well, obviously God has blessed this nation because we're doing so well. We're, we're doing like gangbusters. Therefore, we must be kind of God's new chosen people. So, you know, in, in the era of Pax Britannica, um, uh, this combination of uh, uh, the, you know, the British are going to not just civilize primitive peoples, they're going to Christianize them. So cross and flag went together, were carried together, um, during, you know, high British imperialism. And the same thing happens with the rise of Pax Americana. Um, you know, I think here of, you know, during the Spanish American war, a group of, of liberal Protestants, these are mainline Protestants. It's kind of before that term is, is used, but these were not just evangelicals. It was a broad cross-section of, of um, uh, prominent pastors in the U.S. got together and told President McKinley, like, you need, the U.S. has a sacred obligation to Christianize um, and civilize the Philippines. So you should keep it as a colony so that you can get these people away from the darkness of pagan traditions and, of course, the darkness of Catholicism. This is you know, peak anti-Catholicism in U.S. history. Um, so by Christianized, they mean Protestantize. So there you very literally see America, God has blessed America so that America, as God's people, can spread the blessings of civilization Christianity to the world. Um, more recently, you think of uh, in the post-World War II era, the CIA, we, we know some of this came out during the uh, post-Watergate congressional hearings, but we know that the CIA was actively recruiting and working with American missionaries abroad in the 1940s and 50s, kind of using them as, as agents um, for protecting American empire, even as they were seeking to ostensibly merely Christianize, uh, you know, propagate the gospel in, in these other countries. So that impulse is broad. It's not just conservatives, not just evangelicals. It's a, a function of when Christians have power, uh, they tend to forget all the passages of the Bible that are to God's people when they were in exile, when they are persecuted, when they're a minority. They forget all that stuff. Instead, they like to read the bits um, that are more amenable to holding, possessing, and advancing uh, cultural and political power. So that kind of imperial impulse or, um, yeah, Christian nationalist impulse, seeing uh, instead of the church replacing Israel, seeing uh, uh, the nation state as kind of a replacement for Israel, uh, kinds of tends to creep into Christian thinking in those in those moments in time. We've been talking about Christian nationalism, but the phrase is often written out in, say, newspaper articles about the rise of this as white Christian nationalism. What role then does race play in 
this conversation and and the particular wave we're seeing now? Yeah. So one of the interesting things about um, well, in America, uh, we ha- America is exceptional in the sense that we have this very unique view of race. We have we have our own exceptional form of racism. <laughs> um, in other kind, you know, this is an old an old uh, point. But you know, other countries have they ha- like if you go to South America, there is still racism though it looks more like colorism, where gradations of skin color in, uh, infer certain kinds of social status. But kind of a hard racial white and black line is um, more uniquely American. So everything race tends to creep into every conversation in American history and culture and politics. Just you know, it by by default. So it it, it applies here too, though. Um, one of the interesting things, though, so, so to some extent, when I talk about Seven Mountains theology, most of the believers and practitioners of this theology are white. Some of that's just a function of uh, fissures in American Christianity going all the way back to the early 20th century to the 19th century, where to basically o- almost every American denomination split over racism and over slavery. So you have Southern Baptists, which were expressly formed in defense of in defense of the rights of Baptists to hold slaves in the South versus Northern Baptists who said you shouldn't. Um, and you just go down the list. And so some of that is a function of um the very kind of the 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 fissures in American in American Christian groups um that are very old and continue, continue today. But I think some of it too, though, it's important to remember that there are that there are different forms of Christian nationalism and that just because the current one tends that that's dominant kind of right now in right-wing politics happens to be very white um, doesn't mean that all forms of Christian nationalism are white. And I would argue that like, you know, there are somewhat diluted, but still very real forms of Christian nationalism that it's hard to find anyone who doesn't believe in them except for maybe weird libertarians like us and, and, you know, I guess socialists who don't believe in, you know, the, the Christian part. <laughs> um, there is, so, so think of it this way. Every time a politician says uh, America is a shining city on a hill and, and almost every American president uh, of the last half century has at some point in time or another referenced America as a city on a hill. That's an expression of Christian nationalism. It's taking a Bible verse meant to talk about God's people, the Jews, as in Jerusalem as a city on a hill, a beacon to the to the nations, um, uh, and applying it to America. You don't get more Christian nationalism than that, and yet it is anodyne. <laughs> Everyone references it. And my point here, too, is that then people kind of use Christian nationalism as a tool to gain cultural acceptance. So there are kind of black Christian nationalisms, which, which identify, look, God had a plan for America. That plan was, uh, included racial equality among, among, among Christians, uh, among, um, in America. And yet we have fallen away from God's plan for America promised in the, at the founding. And we need a, you know, it's kind of a Jeremiah here. We've fallen away from the state of grace and now we need to return to that. Part of that is, you know, uh, in the church then, black church being deeply involved in civil rights activism. That is a claim on we belong. We believe we deserve political equality because this is a Christian nation. And in that Christian nation, uh, there it's a it's a should be a land of racial equality. So 
asserting Christian nationalism can be a tool for claiming belonging and place. Um, and so that that's why I would note is that, yes, that this version that we're talking about here, Seven Mountains Theology, that is very white inflected. And it tends to be hostile towards black, brown, others um, by default. So it tends to be very anti, anti-immigrant, suspicious of immigration, um, suspicious, certainly suspicious of, I don't know, things like critical race theory and so on. But that's not the only form of Christian nationalism that exists. So that's that's kind of the caution I would I would put when having that conversation. Now, as liberals who are against this sort of thing, namely the <laughs> you know <clears throat> the the takeover of the state and the operationalizing of it as a means to enforce a particular set of religious beliefs across across the the nation itself. What's the response to this? You know, as because there's, I mean, there's one set of responses, right? If you're simply like a non-Christian, so there's the religious pluralism response of, "Hey, I don't share your metaphysical priors, and so am not comfortable with them being enforced upon on on me." Uh, but there's also going to be a liberal Christian response, and so. What is what is the liberal Christian response to this, and how do you how do you begin to push back on on the idea that because I, I mean it, so it makes sense to say like if you are a member of a evangelical faith, like your Christianity goes out and spreads the good news, right? Like it's it's a religion that wants to convert people. And you have and get them to live in accord with. I mean, that, that conversion means having them live in accord with Christian beliefs and values. And then you've got this tool called the government. You don't want that government to operate in ways that go against Christian values, but it's also a powerful tool for getting a lot of people to, if not embrace those, at least live in ways that don't contradict them. And so what's the what's the liberal Christian case against Christian nationalism? Yeah. That's a good question. It maybe just for my listeners who are list your listeners who are, you know, who use these terms. So if you say liberal Christian, it doesn't mean what you mean. So by liberal Christian you mean like classical liberal, kind of libertarian-ish um Christian. Uh if you say liberal Christian to a Christian, they think of liberal like usually liberal Protestantism or post-Vatican II Catholicism, they think of liberal theology, which is the, the okay. so, but yeah. So kind of classically liberal, how do I think about Christianity and uh, uh, as a, as an evangelical and as a libertarian? It's, it's a good question. So the way I would put it is, and this is actually a very libertarian point. You know, we, we are as a libertarian, we see time and time again, you observe the incompetence of the state at accomplishing its self-set goals. Like here's the outcome we want. The state tries to do it and it bungles it. And we not only don't get the outcome we want, we get the opposite of the outcome we want. So the inadequacy of this, of state capacity, it's, it's inefficiency, it's ability to provoke backlash rather than achieve the results at once. That plays a role here. So you just say, look, if your goal is to have the state advance Christianity can we historically look at how good the state is at advancing Christianity? And the answer is it's terrible at it. <laughs> so just in pragmatic terms, the state is a terrible organ for advancing Christianity. And by Christianity, I mean 
true Christianity. I don't just mean the external form of it. And this is kind of a marker of evangelicalism is this belief that religion is a heart religion. It's about personal affirmation and a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's not all religious traditions share that, but true Christianity then is, is this, is this authentic interior internal relationship with a divine being. You, the state is horrible at advancing that. All it can really do is impose the external form of Christianity and the long history of both European and early American established state churches is a great example of that. A great way of killing authentic heart religion is for the state to create a religion or, or to back a particular religious group. So you look at the hollowing out of Christianity in you know, places like uh, Great Britain, where you know Christianity is on life support, even though it's the state church and the queen is the head of the, the Church of England, or the official established churches in Germany, where, you know, it's, it's you know, it, so this, and in U.S. history, you know, we had these arguments during the early, uh, during the early years uh, in the early republic, but also during the founding era, should there be state religions in the U.S.? And of course, in the U.S. Constitution, they didn't put uh, a state religion, but individual states still had established churches, still had state religions as late as, uh, I think, the 1830s. I think Massachusetts was the last. Um, but again, what, what they discovered time and again, and this was a point made by evangelical Americans like John Leland and Isaac Bacchus. They said, look, state churches are antithetical. They actively undermine authentic religion because it just creates a form thereof, an external form and hollows out the internal meaning. So there's an efficacy concern, a pragmatic, you know, but maybe, you know, maybe if the state was good at advancing religion, it'd be okay, but it's not. Okay, so there's that. There's also then, I think, a theological critique. I don't want to get too down in the weeds here, but in uh, there are many Bible passages which deal with the issue of the state and with force. There's a great book by Oscar Coleman called The State in the New Testament. Um, anyways, uh, which I just highly recommend reading sometime. That's very, it shows the tension between the Jesus and his disciples and the idea of the state during early Christianity. But you look at passages like, uh, you know, um, when uh, uh, think, think of Christ right before his crucifixion, he's in the garden, he's praying. He doesn't want to be crucified. Cruc crucifixion sucks. Uh, he then, um, you know, uh, representatives of the authorities of the Jewish authorities working, I guess, under, you know, Roman ultimate Roman command come and to arrest him. And Peter jumps up, you know, the, the ultimately the the first the first pope in theory. Peter jumps up and is like, okay, ah, I know what to do when this happens. We're being attacked. They want to kill the Messiah. Pick up that sword and whack a soldier's ear off, you know? So he he whacks the soldier's ear off. And Christ is like, Peter, Peter, come on, Peter, you know, this is this is not the way we do things. And he heals the soldier, he puts the ear back on the soldier, and uh, and Peter's like, what? what? This is what you do. That, that's what the swords are for. Like, <laughs> and uh, so we talk about this as laying down the sword and Christ says, you know, ultimately there's this idea that my kingdom is not of this world and that the sword is not an effective tool for advancing the kingdom of God. This metaphysical community of saints on earth, the kingdom of God that someday in Christian theology and Christian eschatology will become a literal kingdom of God after it, during end times events, but now it's just kind of a metaphysical, metaphorical kingdom of God on earth. 
um, is not to be advanced by the sword. That's just not how you do it. It doesn't work. It's not effective. It's not proper. It's not right. And so if you believe, as a libertarian does, that this that the sword ultimately is representative of institutionalized violence, and what the state has is a monopoly on violence, then Christ's command to lay down the sword to expand the kingdom of God via voluntary interaction, via persuasion, not by violence, is a is essentially a prohibition on using the state to extend Christianity. So there's a pragmatic reason to be critical of Christian nationalist uh, uh, fantasies, and there's a theological reason why conservative Christians should be skeptical. Um, and I, I can get real down the weeds. There's these old Christian traditions, like, like two-kingdom theology, uh, it can go all the way back to Augustine. This has been a long tension going you know, to the, the Constantinian versus Augustinian vision of the role of the state in the advance of, of Christianity. Um, but I think there are very good reasons for sincere conservative Christians to say, look, uh, this is not the way to advance, uh, to advance our faith, to propagate our religion, to evangelize both because it's wrong, because Christ condemns it, and because it doesn't work. The state is bad at it. Thank you for listening to Reactionary Minds, a project of the unpopulist. If you want to learn more about the rise of a liberalism and the need to defend a free society, check out theunpopulist.substack.com.